Hi, I'm Matt Sorensen, CMO at Clearbit. And I'm Alex McCaw, CEO of Clearbit. And you're listening to the Manager's Handbook Podcast. Here at Clearbit, we've been writing a book on management as part of our internal training program with a goal of developing world-class managers. The handbook brings together what's worked for us over the past five years and everything we've learned from our failures. Each month, we'll be releasing a new episode of the pod along with a written chapter of the handbook. You can find this all at themanagershandbook.com. Today, we're talking about quite possibly my favorite chapter and the one that has had the greatest impact on my own life, coaching and feedback. I'm your host, Matt Sorensen, and joining me today, as always, is Alex McCaw, Clearbit CEO and resident tea enthusiast. So let's jump right in. Alex, there's a concept that is really core to how we approach kind of coaching here. It's called zone of genius. Can you define that for us? Absolutely. Zone of genius is a framework that comes from a book called The Big Leap by this guy called Gay Hendricks. And it's a really useful framework for trying to understand how you should spend your life. And what I see time and time again is people spending their life doing jobs that they're good at or even great at, but that these jobs don't give them energy. They don't get strength from these jobs and then they end up burning out. So there are four zones in the zone of genius framework. And the four zones are the zone of incompetence, zone of competence, zone of excellence, and zone of genius. So, Matt, what do you think your zone of genius is? Oh, yeah, it's something I've thought quite a bit about and I think has kind of clarified here at Clearbit. But there's a couple of things I think I'm uniquely, uniquely good at. One is being able to ingest a lot of information at a relatively surface level, but then recall the pieces of it or the edges of it that I need later. So, for example, I can read every email that comes through and every Slack message we have. It doesn't overwhelm me. It doesn't like it doesn't shut me down like it does some folks. And then I'm able to actually remember enough of that information that I can recall it later at need. And I think the second thing, uh, which has really been exposed to me over the last couple of years here, is using vulnerability as for team building. Like using trust and, a vul- and vulnerability, or using vulnerability to create trust and bring teams together. Right. And fourth, making fun of me. Yes. Well, I mean, very confident at that. Yes. How about, you, how about yourself? Well, like you, I can take the fire hose of information. And I think that's quite important for people on the leadership team. I think I'm very good at products and predicting the future and trying to align product towards that. I'm very good one-on-one selling. So I'm good with investors and I'm good closing candidates as well. Less so with customers, but... Less so with Christmas, that's right. Got that out. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's actually dig back into Zone of Genius. There's three other zones that we think about that kind of below Zone of Genius. Can you break those down for us? So there's the Zone of Incompetence, which is kind of obvious. It's basically when you're just bad at doing something. And in that case, you should just delegate that or someone should be redistributed in an organization or or they should leave the company as well. So... That that generally tends to be pretty obvious if someone's in the zone of incompetence. Zone of competence is tasks that they're good at, but that other people can do better. So other people should probably do those things. 
Zone of excellence. This is where people mostly get caught up. So these are things that they're, they're actually good at, but that doesn't give them energy of the long term. And eventually this results in burnout. So is it possible when we think about this from a management perspective of like where we want people to spend their energy, is it really possible to expect that everyone will be working in their zone of genius? For the majority of their work, that is the goal. And as a manager, you should be thinking about trying to get your team into those positions. You should be thinking of your team as cast members in a film that you're making and trying to cast them into the right roles. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. I think one challenge I've seen people face is when you know your zone of genius and what you think is fun and brings you energy, you assume that that's true for other people as well. So I know there's often fear about if everyone is, can only work in their zone of genius, then there's no one to do the like boring work. Right. But what you and I consider boring, some people absolutely love. So people think so differently. For example, I kind of suck at numbers and I definitely suck at putting P&L statements and putting those things together. Luckily, we have people in the finance department that love doing that kind of stuff. So that, that's their zone of genius and I'm in my zone of genius. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out that we all spend time in our zone of excellence and even zone of competence. And we might want to limit that as much as possible because that's where we have like true outsized impact. But it will happen. We're going to spend time there. This isn't a 100% game. When I think about people on the team, key members of the team that have left Clearbit, it's almost all been because they've been in their zone of excellence. They've been really good at what they do, but it hasn't been it isn't giving them energy, and ultimately, they burn out. So I think that's really interesting. Can we actually go detailed there and talk through a real-life example? So there is one example I can think of. Someone who is a key player on the ops team who is very good at operations, and you should see his checklist. He was getting all these things done, and the team ran really well underneath him. But what he was doing didn't give him energy. It wasn't a strength of his. It didn't give him energy, although he was very good at it. And after three years, he left. Yeah, makes sense. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. So from that example, what would you do differently now? Like, how would you deliver that feedback that someone isn't working within their zone of genius? Well, these days with my feedback, rather than trying to perfect someone into what I think they should, you know, the model employee... I actually will focus my feedback based on their zone of genius, basically trying to get them better at what they're already good at. Because the thing is, you can't create talent where there is none. I think these things are baked in. So it's much better to focus your feedback on people's strengths rather than their weaknesses. Absolutely. I think that brings up a kind of our next topic here and a super important one here at Clearbit, which is giving and receiving feedback. Why is feedback so important to you and to Clearbit at large? I think it's one of the most important aspects of management. And I think of it like an immune system. And the feedback is like white blood cells in a company. And without feedback, things fester and disease spreads. And feedback is a great way to nip stuff in the bud before it gets too bad. So... At a macro level, pockets of disagreement within feedback-lacking organizations, they grow, they cause resentment, distrust, 
and ultimately organizational failure. And then at a micro level, I believe that feedback is the only way to achieve true personal growth. You are just not objective enough about yourself to grow effectively without external feedback. Totally, totally agree. I think feedback is a very misunderstood thing and actually pretty widely defined. So let's get really tight and define feedback. So we do two types of feedback at Clearbit, positive feedback and critical feedback. And whenever we're giving feedback, we try and do both as well. People tend to need quite a lot of positive feedback. Otherwise, they feel pretty down about things. But the critical feedback, honestly, that's where the the meat is. Yeah, that's the part to get right. And time and time again, I see companies do it wrong. I even see clearbidders do it wrong inside the company. It can be really hard to like maintain good feedback. Right. At Clearbit, we actually have a very specific framework that we use for giving and receiving feedback. And I can take you through it, Matt, if you'd like. Oh, please. So when giving feedback, and I'm going to focus on critical feedback right now because that is where most people make mistakes. The key is not to live in what I call ruinous empathy. Well, I say I call that, I stole that from a book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And this is the main mistake that I see managers making is they they live in this ruinous empathy quadrant when they're giving feedback. And what this means is they are pulling their punches. They're making excuses on behalf of their report. They're putting weasel words in there. They're not actually saying what they really think because they're trying to be nice. They're trying to ingratiate themselves. They're trying to win over a report. And maybe they, they tell themselves a story. I'm want to build some trust with this report. And then over time, I'll be able to give actually candid feedback. So would an example of that be like, I totally understand that you're having a hard time right now. And like, this is a really hard project, but it's something that's like not quite what it needs to be. Or Yeah. What clear signs of it are when you say, when you see people using the word we instead of you, or you see them giving feedback with an excuse baked right in there. So that's the biggest mistake that we see people doing. And so when we give feedback, we actually use this format that we've t- taken from nonviolent communication. And th- there's a book that I highly recommend everyone read on non- NVC, nonviolent communication. But the key thing is to talk about internal truths. So it goes like this. When you do specific action, so when you do This should be a fact, something that a camera would record, something that is indisputable. So when you do specific action, I feel emotion. So emotion could be anger, sadness, fear. So when you do specific action, I feel emotion because the story in my head is, and then you talk about your fear. So then you get vulnerable and you talk about your fear. And notice you're talking about your own internal truths. I feel sadness. No one can dispute that. I feel fear. No one can dispute that. And then you talk about, because the story in my head. So the story in your head is the extrapolation that you have made based on that fact. And again, it's a story in your head. No one can dispute that. So I can give you an example here. When you didn't write any tests for that pull request you submitted last week, I feel fear because the story in my head is that you don't place enough value on testing and that without tests, we will introduce bugs that will upset customers, affect revenue, and ultimately destroy our chances of creating a successful company. Whoa. 
Big fear. That's right. I th- I think it's key to get really vulnerable here at the end and talk about your ultimate extrapolation of, of your fear. Like, why do you care so much about this? I think that's a really good piece of feedback, Kaz, where you're giving a really good idea as you're pulling feedback out of people as well. Even in this, I find when people talk about their fear, often it's like a third or fourth order fear versus like, what's the root fear of why that actually matters to you? Right. And people are going to trust you a lot more and understand why something's important if they understand that root fear. So there's some, there's some other things we do with feedback. So critical feedback should be given privately unless you have an agreement that it can be given publicly. And that happens in limited cases. At Clearbit, everyone on the leadership team has the commitment that they will take critical feedback publicly. And it just requires a certain level of emotional maturity. But you can't do that. Most people have not signed up for that. And that's fine. So you give it to them privately. You give it to them regularly. You give it to them in their one-on-one every single week. And when you say that, who's giving feedback to who here? Is it manager to report, wider than that? It's really key that it's bi-directional. This is not a power thing. It's very difficult to get around that, though. We have had a lot of trouble eliciting feedback going from report to a manager, but it is important that a report feels like they can give the manager feedback and that the manager is going to act in that feedback. I think it also is, there's a wave, as a manager, as you start to get good feedback, and especially if you're sharing that publicly, more and more people feel comfortable and willing to do so. It is a, it's definitely a journey, but it's very, very much worth it. I agree. And on the leadership team, I would say that is one of the main reasons that I'm still CEO of Clibit and I think fairly good CEO, because I've had so much feedback from all of you guys, you know? I've had feedback like, you're, you're shit at public speaking, Alex. Go and get a public speaking coach. Or, you know, you, you really should get a management coach, you know. And all of, these, all of these pieces of feedback have really helped form me into the person I am today. And I couldn't imagine being in a system without that. Absolutely. I think that's one of my favorite things about both the leadership team and the growth and marketing teams are... Every single week, I basically have a checklist of things that I can get better at, which really works with my personality type. Right. You know, I did a 360 the other day, and I published it to the whole company. And I want to set a precedent and say, hey, this is what I'm trying to improve upon. You know, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm self-aware about all these things. And if you see me doing these things, call me out on it because I'm specifically trying to improve on these things. All right. So someone comes up to you after they published this 360. And actually, what was, what's one of your learning areas? Active listening. Active listening. All right. So after a meeting, someone pulls you aside and says, hey, Alex, I want to give you some feedback on active listening. I just shout at them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the key thing about receiving feedback is making the other person feel heard. Now. Just because someone gives you feedback doesn't mean you have to accept it. That's the, then you're in the tyranny of the feedback giver, right? But you have to make them feel heard at the very least, and you have to be curious about it and see how it could be true. I would actually say you have to commit to listen, not just make them feel heard. Yes. You might not have to accept, but you do have to listen. Agreed. And so what is the best way of doing that? It's repeating back what they've said. So what you say is, What I heard you said, Matt, was in that meeting, I wasn't 
active listening. Is that right? Is there anything else? Right. And I might repeat back, well, yeah, there was that, but also your body language made it really look like you didn't care about what I was saying. And I just felt like, you know, whatever I was unimportant. Right. So Matt, what I'm hearing is that not only was I not active listening, but my body posture was just not representative that I was listening at all. And, and you just felt like you weren't heard. Is that right? Yeah, I think you've got it. Okay. Do you have a habit that you suggest that I could use to get better? Yeah, I think if during our meetings, we both committed that when we're in, in a, a group meeting, we're going to be in that meeting, very focused, very present. And if ever we feel like we shouldn't be there, we'll say that and we'll have a conversation about whether or not the meeting should be happening. Yeah, or potentially, what about if we just leave meetings if we think that we're not contributing or getting any value from them? And so I think there's a couple things in there to unpack. One is the act of repeating back and actually active listening in our example, but repeating back, making sure that you've heard it all. And then the person receiving feedback, offering or asking for versus offering a suggestion of how to fix it. Right, right. We, we call those little habits. The last thing I want to mention about feedback is, as I said before, it's hard to elicit feedback up, upwards from, from report to managers, unfortunately. And w while we've tried, we have found one way that does work for us, which is anonymous feedback. So there's various systems and products that you can use to actually get this feedback. And we use a tool called Tiny Pulse. But every week, we ask our employees to fill in a survey. And this could be something like, how happy are you at work? How will you rate your manager? Do you feel like critical feedback is listened to? That kind of thing. And we found that to be a game changer. Yeah, informs almost everything, almost all the decisions, improvements we make on culture and process. Yeah. All right. Well, I actually want to jump to a tangential but different topic of one-on-ones. And at Clearbit, we think that one-on-ones are your very, very most important meeting as a manager. And for me, mine have transformed over the last two to three years. At one point, they were kind of kind of a chore and kind of just a like information dump check-in. And now they're some of my most valuable meetings every single week. So at Clearbit, we have very highly structured and very pre-prepared one-on-ones. Why did we make that decision? You know, when I am hiring managers, one of the first questions I ask them is, how do you run one-on-ones? And you won't believe the answers I get. So much waffling. People saying, oh, it's, you know, the reports meeting, and so I let them do whatever they want. You know, it's unstructured. We just go for a walk, da da da, da. And... I just think that is the opposite way that you should be doing one-on-ones. They should be highly structured. They are your report's meeting, but your report will get a lot more out of that meeting if they are structured. So we actually run all of our one-on-ones out of Asana. We create a project in Asana, the task management system, and, and our one-on-ones are prepared for. So we actually have a minute-by-minute -minute schedule for the one-on-ones. And again, this might seem onerous, but it actually leaves some more time for people to have unstructured creative conversation at the end. Yeah, and I also find it means that everyone has the information they need at the beginning, and it's, they've been able to read it ahead of time. So by the time you get to that meeting, you're actually making, you're both coming from the same level of information, you're making decisions together versus having a conversation where you're like pulling information out of each other. Right. It's just a lot more efficient. You know, written communication is a lot more efficient than spoken. So take me through, take me through a one-on-one. -on -one. 
Yeah. So like I said earlier, these one-on-ones are prepared for. So the first thing your report's going to do prior to the one-on-one is write an update. And usually this updates around the OKRs and the good and bad things that have happened since the last one-on-one related to those OKRs. And then some more preparation. The report is going to put together any issues they have and propose solutions. And we actually use Asana for this. They're just creating tasks in Asana. Each of these tasks has a written out description of the issue and the proposed solution. So essentially, that's like a decision. I need to make a decision. Here's what I think the answer is. And that allows the manager to come in and interact with that with full context. Right. And generally, the the report just wants a second opinion on this. But their proposal is fine. And you should be, during the one-on-one, whizzing through these issues and proposed solutions. And the last thing that should be prepared for is the topics. These are more open-ended discussion topics. Again, it's very important to have a long description that details exactly what you want to talk about. That way, during the one-on-one, the manager can just read that and get up to date instantly. So let's move into the actual one-on-one. So the start of the one-on-one, it's important to get people into the right headspace. You know, they're, they're in the busy day-to-day jobs. You want to get them out of that. Take them out of whatever document they're working on past last and into the present of this meeting. Right. And you want to build on your relationship as well. You want to build that trust. If people are going to receive critical feedback from you, they need to know that you actually care about them as a person. And so the way that we typically do that, the very start, is kind of a highlight of the last week. That's right. So we just say, yeah, what was your highlight of the last week? Could be a work, could be personal. So what was your highlight? My highlight was going out and seeing the knocks with you, Matt, oh, on Friday yeah, night. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. My highlight actually also involved you, which is making me question how much time we spent together, but was taking you and the, the leadership team out sailing on Sunday. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Uh, you see, see how much bonding just happened there? I feel so much better. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so now I'm going to read your prepared update in silence. Now, I'm not going to ask you questions halfway through it. I'm going to read the whole thing in silence and then get completely synchronized with what's happened that week. And at the end, I'm going to ask questions. And then we whiz through the issues and proposed solutions. Again, these should be quick decisions. You can delegate them to another meeting if it requires a longer discussion. So an example of that might be, I think I need to open a new job rec for a growth engineer for these four reasons. It's outside of my normal hiring plan. This is my proposed solution. My proposed solution is the job rec and that'll get approved or not. And then we go into topics. And like I said, this is more open-ended. This is where the creativity often happens. And this is generally you're jamming on some topic and it's, and it's usually quite fun. Yeah, so this could be like, where does a podcast on management fit into our wider clear goals? Right. And then prepared feedback. And it, look, sometimes you might have not prepared this feedback and you can do it at the end, but... Generally, it's better to prepare it so you've actually thought about it. Yeah, it's much better to do this, I find, the day before or a few hours before. If you do it at the end of the one-on-one or during the one-on-one, it's very easy to be reactive, unlike the last issue you just talked about, or even the other person's feedback to you. Um, So the earlier you can do this and the more thoughtfully, the better. Right. And we do the format of, I like that, I wish that being the critical part, I like that being something specifically positive that they've done that week. It's not like, I like your man bun, Matt. No one, no one likes a man bun. No. <laughs> it is, I like the fact that 
you scooted over here with me to this podcast. Even though I really didn't want to. <laughs> and that's the end of the one-on-one. And what I like doing at the end of the one-on-one is hugging or high-fiving just to seal that commitment. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting, not everyone wants to hug, so be conscious. Yeah. Nah, that's why That's why the book says high-five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've covered quite a bit today. We've covered zones of genius, giving and receiving feedback, details of how we run one-on-ones. Let's close it out with some common mistakes. Like, what are the biggest mistakes you've made or seen others make? So I would say there is four common management mistakes that every new manager makes. And we've put them specifically as a separate chapter in this book because it happens so often. And the first is heroing. So that is doing the work of your subordinates on their behalf. And generally speaking, this happens when you think you're the best person to do it. It's not going to get done to your standard if you're not doing it. Your reports are too busy to do it. You know, there's a few different ways that you might justify this to yourself. And some things shouldn't be delegated. Like I can't delegate a board meeting, for example. I have to be there in person and do it myself. But most things should be delegated. And if you're not delegating things, then your reports are not learning. You're not scaling yourself. You can never go on vacation. And you, you need to basically delegate work even if you know it is not going to be done to your exact standard. So that there's like a failure rate that's built into the idea of delegation. When you're delegating, you should think about a failure rate being built into delegated work. So it might be 10% less than if you'd actually done it yourself the first time. The second time, it's going to be 5% less good. The third time, it's going to be just as good as if you had done it. And sure, it's been done a little bit less good the last couple of times, but now someone's trained up on it. They know how to do it. And now there's two of you doing the things. Right. And now you can go on vacation. (laughs) That's how it works. (laughs) Is it okay to sometimes hero? Startups are small, they're resource constraint. Yes, sometimes you have to hero. The way that I look at it is just make it really obvious that you're heroing. I'll give you an example. There was someone on the leadership team who was really struggling to hire. And that is a critical component to being on that team. It's part of their role and responsibilities is, is hiring out that team. So I said to them, after six months of them not hiring anyone, I said, okay, I'm going to step in. I'm going to help you hire this person. But first of all, I want to make it very clear that I'm heroing. And second of all, I'm only going to do this once. I think that feeds really nicely into another common mistake we see, which is managers or leaders not prioritizing hiring. Yes. So you can get in this vicious circle of doing individual contributor work, not focusing on hiring. The work increases and then you, you just don't know how you, you'll ever have time for hiring because so much get, needs to get done. Right. It's the very conscious choice of doing less now so I can do more later. Right. And again, the same with delegation. You need to just bake in that failure, pause your IC work, and focus on hiring because long term it's going to be better for the company. I think that's an interesting segue here to the next one, which is baking in that failure. Another very common mistake is not acting fast enough when someone isn't working out. Right. It's honestly very obvious when people aren't working out and people, managers especially, drag their feet before firing them. The thing to remember is it's really selfish to to the rest of your team. 
and it's selfish to the, the rest of the company. You know, if you have someone who's not performing, then it's just going to drag the rest of your team down. It's one of the hardest things. You've often made a pretty deep emotional connection with this person. You've worked with them every day for a month or two or three months at this point. And so taking, taking that step, making that decision, it's really hard. It is hard. But the key thing is that we have a whole process around it. We, we have PIPs. So it never comes as a shock to anyone. And the last one here, one of your favorites. Tell us about it. Ruinous empathy. So I've just found ruinous empathy to be one of the most common mistakes managers make when giving feedback. And they give feedback in a ruinous, empathetic way in, in order to sugarcoat it, to make the other person feel better, but actually to make them feel better. No one likes conflict. People avoid conflict. But in reality, you are diluting the message, undermining the feedback, and doing your report a disservice. That's all, folks. Tune in next month for the next episode and chapter of the Manager's Handbook podcast. This episode is being recorded at StudioPod SF. For more information, go to studiopodsf.com. Thank you for listening.